So I hope, I hope tonight you have a Bible with you because we are going to be in Psalm 119. It's going to be a little bit before we get there, but if you want to go ahead and make your way to Psalm 119, that is where we're going to be at eventually. So two weeks ago, we, uh, well, let me back up. A month or so ago, we spent some time saying, what do we want to do during this evening time as far as topics to study or topics to consider in a may, maybe kind of a Bible study format? So, some of the different ideas that were brought out or things that you would like to be discussed has to do with distinctives. What sets us apart as a Baptist church or what sets us apart at FBC Wellston from maybe another congregation or another denomination down the road? And so what we did, um, we we were talking last week about that there are differences. Now, Wednesday night, I am walking out to the truck to leave the church Wednesday night after the evening service. And here comes this four-wheeler coming down the road. And behind the four-wheeler, it's hooked up like these buggies. They're metal barrels that have been holes have been cut in, they're laid on their side, they're put on wheels, and it's like a tram. And so here comes this forward with this tram, and as the forwarder makes the curve and it's coming down there, I recognize that the forwarder is being driven by Paul Butler. Now, you may not know who Paul Butler is. He is the pastor, I guess relatively new, he's been there three or four months, but he's the new pastor at the Assembly of God Church here in town. A very nice man, a very pleasant man, I've got a chance to visit with him, and uh, he comes coming, he comes pulling by, and as I look, I recognize who he is, but his cargo <laughs> is some of these men sitting right here. <laughs> so he has these teenage young men that are loaded up, and I think there's six or seven of these buggies, and these teenage men are just like lounged back, like on the lazy river at Whitewater, and they're just like chilling out, getting a ride. And he comes up and he just kind of jokingly says, Do you recognize these young men? And I'm like, yes. Now, I have lots of questions like, where'd you get them? <laughs> where, are you How, where are you taking them? How much are you charging them? I mean, this could be a way we could build some revenue for the church, right? But it was just something that I thought was really cool that you had the Assembly of God preacher and I'm assuming it's his buggy, I'm assuming it's his four-wheeler and he's pulling around youth that were here on Wednesday night. When I had a chance to talk with Mr. Butler, you know, we had a conversation and we were both very honest that there were differences among us, but at the same time, those differences do not require us or necessitate that we can't have fellowship or friendship between one another. So what I want you to hear from me last two weeks ago and tonight and maybe in the future is when I'm talking about these distinctives, it's not meant to be a point of that's them, this is us, no conversation, no fellowship, no awareness. There is a lot of of things that we can find common ground on. But at the same time, there is a reason why there is a First Baptist Wellston and there is a Assembly of God Wellston. There are differences. So what my goal is through this is to look at the distinctives, not to look against them or to demean them or to disparage them, but to just say these are the things that we hold to that set us apart from other religions and other denominations. So two weeks ago we talked about what? Baptism. baptism. Okay, thank you. So, we talked about baptism and how baptism is a distinctive within the Baptist church. What we're going to look at tonight has to do with the Bible. 
You may not think the Bible is much of a distinctive when it comes to the Baptist church, but the Baptists historically have been known as the people of the book. Let me give you a little explanation. We're going to go into a little bit of history lesson about how we came to the Bible being so important within the church today. So, travel back with me to the 1960s and the 1970s within the Southern Baptist Convention. So this church, we voluntarily fellowship and associate not only with the Pottawatomie Lincoln County Association headquartered in Shawnee, 66 churches, Southern Baptist churches come together. We have an association, cooperation, we work together. But then on the state level, you have what used, to be, what used to be called the Baptist General Convention of Oklahoma, now known just as Oklahoma Baptist. So you have all the Southern Baptists from the state come together, and we fellowship, and we do things together. It's through that cooperative work. We're able to have Falls Creek. We're able to have um, cross timbers. We're able to do other things because we're cooperatively working together. Take that from the state level, then you go to the national level, and you have the Southern Baptist Convention. 47,000 churches, 16 million plus members of those churches that then come together and work on one level or another in a cooperative way to advance the kingdom of God, to chase darkness, and to tell people about Jesus. So last Sunday night, we had the missionaries, Kenny and Cheryl Morris, serving in Panama with the International Mission Board. The International Mission Board is a entity under the Southern Baptist Convention. So Southern Baptist churches come together, they give collectively to help fund and support international missions. North American Mission Board is primarily focused on Mexico, the United States, and Canada, and that is the more domestic side of the mission arm within the Southern Baptist Church. So in the 60s and 70s, there was a great liberal shift that was taking place within the SBC, the Southern Baptist Convention. It would not have been out of line in the 60s and 70s for you to hear somebody question the deity of Christ. That Christ was not really, truly God in the flesh. That He was not the Son of God. They, there was people that were denying the virgin birth. That Mary was just a maiden, which was a young lady. That she was not a virgin. They would dismiss the atonement. The atonement is what we believe as Christ dying on the cross and His death, burial, and resurrection is what paid the price for our sins and made the way for salvation. That is all considered part of the atonement. They would say the atonement um, is not necessary for salvation. The atonement did not um, did not actually happen. They would twist the creation account, and that's where you get gap theory at. So you have people, when it comes to the um, creation you find in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and there's questions about how do we understand that. Is, a, is it a literal seven days? Yes. How in the world do we have a literal seven days? How does God do all that in seven 24-hour periods? He's God. So then how do we explain carbon dating? How do we explain other geological ideas and opinions when it comes to the dating of things and them talking about these things are older than 6,000 years old? It's because if God can create an earth, He can create a mature earth. When He created Adam and Eve, He did not create them as infants. He created them as mature people. It's not a stretch to think that He created mature trees. He created mature animals. And He can create mature rocks. And He can create mature rock formations. 
but there was a lot of questions. And so the gap theory came in and said, oh, well, between this day and this day, you've got so many millions of years, and that accounts for the evolutionary theories that are out there. So the creation account was twisted. The trust and the inerrancy of Scripture was forfeited. And all six of the seminaries were in shambles. Now, within the Southern Baptist Convention, we have six seminaries. We've got Gateway Seminary in Oakland, California. You have Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas, which I have um, received a a degree from. You have Midwestern Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, which I'm a student enrolled at currently. You have Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. It's the first seminary within the convention that was ever started. You've got Southeastern Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina. And then you've got New Orleans Seminary in New Orleans, Louisiana. You had these six seminaries, and in the 60s and 70s, you had professors that were teaching heresy. They were teaching that the Bible wasn't reliable. They were teaching that the Bible wasn't something that you should hold to. And they were teaching that you can take it or leave it. And they were then deciding what was truth, what was Scripture, and what we should base our doctrine upon. Now this was the landscape in the 60s and the 70s. It is out of that era where you had other denominations like Missionary Baptists that began to flourish because you had a lot of people in the churches that were saying this isn't right. Who is doing it the right way? And they went to the American Baptist Association, the Northern Baptist Association, and other ones that were still holding to a traditional conservative view of Scripture. So, 1979 in a coffee shop in New Orleans, a man by the name of Judge Paul Pressler and Paige Patterson met. And the conversation was, how do we recover the convention? A lot of different moving parts, a lot of problems that were there. They met, then they went and enlisted the help of a man by the name of Adrian Rogers. Has anybody ever heard of him? Okay, so well-known, prominent preacher. You can find his preaching. He's, he's passed away, but you can still find his preaching today. I listen to his preaching every day on his podcast. Phenomenal preaching. A well-known, well-established, conservative pastor from Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee. And then they enlisted the help of W.A. Criswell. They might know who that is. So W.A. Criswell was the long time, for over 50 years, was the pastor at First Baptist Church, Dallas. Two giants in Southern Baptist work. So Judge Pressler and Paige Patterson got with Adrian Rogers and W.A. Criswell and said, what are we going to do? How do we recover this drift, this liberal drift that we're taking? So what was decided upon was their plan was this. The goal was to recover the churches. But they understood that in order to recover the churches, you're going to have to influence the seminaries that are training the pastors of the churches. And in order to recover the seminaries, you're going to have to influence who is in charge of the seminaries. And every seminary is governed by a board of trustees. These board of trustees are selected for a varying length of tenure, but they are elected by the whole body that meets once a year at the Southern Baptist Convention, the annual business meeting. 
So they are, these board of trustees are, their names are put forth and they are elected by the convention. Okay, so if we're going to influence the trustees, we've got to influence the people that are nominating the trustees. The trustees are nominated, Please, and if I lose you, just raise your hand and I'll slow down. The trustees are nominated and put forth by a group called the Committee on Committees. Every year, the Committee of Committees says we've got five vacancies. They um, take names to serve in these capacities, vet these men and women, and then put forth nominations to the body as a whole, then to serve in that capacity. So they say, if we're going to recover the church, we've got to influence the seminary. If we're going to recover the seminary, we've got to influence the Board of Trustees. If we're going to recover the Board of Trustees, we have to influence the Committee on Committees. Who decides who serves in the Committee on Committees? It is the President of the Southern Baptist Convention. That person is the one every year that appoints the Committee on Committees. So Judge Pressler and Paige Patterson said, if we are going to recover this work, it has to start with electing a conservative president to the convention who will then select conservative members for the Committee on Committees who will then put forth conservative names for nomination to serve as the Board of Trustees, who will then serve as the Board of Trustees and through the course of time will then outnumber the Liberals on the Board of Trustees. Then the Board of Trustees then can select conservative presidents of the seminary and can elect certain conservative professors at the seminary, thereby having an influence and a recovery effect on the pastor and then the church. Does that make sense? So in 1979, the Southern Baptist Convention was held in Houston, Texas. And I have read stories that when the word came out, this is what we're going to do. For the last 20 years, there have been liberal presidents of the convention. In fact, in 1971, the convention came together and adopted a resolution at the National Convention supporting the practice of abortion in a set number of conditions. You can go back, 1971, look at the resolutions. They supported abortion in the case of rape, incest, or when fetal abnormalities were detected. That's 1971. That's two years before the Supreme Court ruled on Roe v. Wade. That shows you how liberal they had gotten. So in 1979, the call goes out, we need to elect Pastor Rogers to serve this convention. The small town... No-name pastors from all of the rural areas of the nation flocked to Houston. There are stories about pastors and they were carpooling. Three or four guys in a little car driving down there, not even having enough money for a motel, sleeping in their car overnight on the side of the city street just so they could be present to vote because they understood how important it was to elect a conservative president because of the ripple effect that it would have. That it would have. So 1979, Adrian Rogers was selected as the president, and for the next 10, 12 plus years, a conservative president was continually selected, and that had a ripple effect all the way through the 80s and into the 90s. And you have now, we are now the benefits of what is called a conservative resurgence. The only time in the history of a religion or denomination where when the religion or denomination went left, 
then there was work, successful work, to bring it back to biblical fidelity. The only time in the history of humanity when that has happened because they understood how this worked. Now, understand, when this all started taking place, there were lots of divisions. So in 1990... Over 1,900 churches left the Southern Baptist Convention and formed the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. CBF is still in existence. First Baptist Church, Oklahoma City, is in the CBF. Now they split because they didn't like they didn't like the conservative direction that the SBC was going, and you had all these churches that said, "No, we want to maintain to our liberal trajectory." Um, Baylor University is part of CBF. All right. So, among many liberal liberal leanings that they have, one of the things that they really embrace and they champion is, is ordaining women to pastoral ministry. That's a big hallmark of the CBF. So if you see that, the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, just understand that that is a different, that is a different organization, if you will, and they have different leanings. There are differences among us. Now, all of this conservative resurgence culminated in the adoption of the Baptist Faith and Message of 2000. Now, I've told you that there is a article of faith or a profession of faith that we hold to. This church uh, uh, subscribes to the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. It's the official statement of faith for the Southern Baptist Convention. We do not have to because we're voluntarily associated with them. We don't have to adopt it, but it's 18 articles that lay out what we believe about the Bible, what we believe about God, what we believe about sin, and what we believe about the church. Article 1 of the Baptist Faith and Message is entitled, The Scriptures. This is what it says. The Holy Bible is written by men divinely inspired and is God's revelation of Himself to man. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore, all Scripture is totally true and trustworthy. It reveals the principles by which God judges and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world the true center of Christianity union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct creeds and religious opinions should be tried all scripture is a testimony to Christ who is himself the focus of divine revelation the statement they wanted to make was that the authority of God's word matters and you might think Spence What does this have to do with us? Why is the Bible a point of distinction? Does anybody know the name Justin Welby? Okay, so Justin Welby, um, 2013, he was installed as the Archbishop of Canterbury. Does that ring a bell to anybody? Y'all got to read some more. Get out of the funny pages. All right. So I know you would know the Archbishop of Canterbury, my brother. All right. So I'm going to try to be fair. So the Archbishop at Canterbury is associated with the Anglican Church. Now, you have the Church of England, otherwise known as the Anglican Church. Now, who is the head of the Church of England? The king. That's right. His majesty. Is it? Charles? Okay. So, His Majesty Charles, it was Her Majesty the Queen, but he is considered to be the head of the church. Now, underneath him, you have the priest, the chief chief bishop, if you will. I'm, I'm not trying to be derogatory, but you have the head 
pastor of the entire Anglican Church is known as the Archbishop of Canterbury. So, you have in England, you have the Anglican Church, the Church of England. When it migrated to the United States, it dropped the, the Church of England description and became called the... Episcopal Church. That's right. So the Episcopal Church is a first cousin of the Church of England. Now, Justin Welby, why why do I bring up Justin Welby? Because just in the last six months, the question in England, when it comes to the Church of England, is what are we going to do about same-sex marriages? Are we going to honor them? Are we going to perform them? Are we going to practice them? Just in the last six months, Justin Welby, who is not the head, but he is the person in charge of the Anglican Church, Church of England, came out and said, Well, we are not going to we are not going to write it into our doctrine that you can perform them, but we will develop a blessing for same-sex unions and if any of our clergy perform same-sex unions, we will not bring any kind of punishment upon them. A complete denial of the authority of the Word of God. So what separates us as Baptists, and I'm not saying that the Baptists, oh, we're the only ones that own a Bible. But one of the distinctives that separates us is the fact that we are people of the Bible and we hold to the authority of God's Word. So if we read in the Bible that the preacher is to wear a polka dot suit, then what does the preacher do the following Sunday? He wears a polka dot suit. Why? Because we submit ourselves to the authority of God's Word. And it's not a matter of your opinion, or my opinion, or what the culture is doing, or what is popular, or what is pleasing, or what people are willing to do. We say, as a collective body, this is our authority. The reason why I went through the whole history lesson from the 60s up until now, because it's important for us to know that it hasn't always been like this. And we are a tremendously blessed people today to be able to say that we have a church here that is committed to the authority of God's Word. Now, what I want to do tonight, you're in Psalm 119, is I want us to come around together and to think about how some Psalm 119 informs us of the importance of God's Word. What does it tell us about God's Word? Now we're going to do something different tonight that I have, I have, I don't think I've ever tried before. And so, Adam said it's all about execution. So I, I, this may be a total flop. So what I want to try tonight, what I want to try to do tonight is... Oh, oh mackerel. Okay, so we are going to... No, we're not going to because we don't have enough time. Okay, so... Bad execution, Adam. Alright, so we're going to look at these first eight verses. Nah, I totally misjudged my time. So we're going to look at these first eight verses, okay? That's five. So we're going to look at these first eight verses. Now, there are how many sections in Psalm 119? There's 175 verses. How many sections? There's more than eight, brother. More than nine. Thirty-three. I count twenty. Am I miscounting something? Well, there's twenty-two verses in the alphabet. Okay, so each each section, if you look in your Bible, okay, so you see at the top of verse one, you see how it says Aleph. Everybody seeing that? 
Does the King James have that, Ron? Olive? A-L-E-T-H. Yes, sir. Olive, okay? And then you get down to verse 9, and it says bait. B-E-T-H, okay? Anybody know what that is? That's not related to me? <laughs> it's the Hebrew alphabet. It's the Hebrew alphabet. That's right. Okay, so if you're to go through the Hebrew alphabet, you're going to go in order. So as they set out Psalm 119, they set it out in different sections that follow the Hebrew alphabet. Okay, so if you're at, if you're wondering when you get to Psalm 119, what is Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Daleth, He, Vav, Zion, Het, Yod, um, Tet, um, Kaf, Lamed, Mem, Nun, Samek, Ayin, Pe, Sade, Kof, uh, Resh, Sin, and Shin, and Ta. If you're saying, what do all those mean? Those are all the names of the Hebrew letters. Took me two semesters to be able to do that. So, it takes a while. So, anyways. So, if, if you... And the reason I bring this up is because you get into Psalm 119. And yes, Mark was right. There's 175 verses in Psalm 119. Or 176, I'm sorry. So, if you're sitting there going, you know what... I'm, Monday morning, I really don't know what to do as far as studying God's Word. There's always some place you can go. And one of the things that I'd recommend is starting in Psalm 119 and just saying, you know what, I'm just going to read a section at a time. And maybe I'll read the same section every day, all week long, and go to the next section. There is so much richness in the Word of God. We're going to divide up in groups and look at six different sections. But for the sake of time, let's just together look at these first eight verses. And what I want you to look at, if you would please, I want you to look at where the writer of the psalm references the Word of God. And specifically look and see in all these eight verses the references to the Word of God or the reference to the authority of the Word of God. And then also look for a cause, a result, a promise, a warning, or something that the writer includes as being or regarding the role of God's Word in our lives. Does that make sense? So as the writer of the psalm says, okay, let me tell you about the Word of God, and then I'll tell you what it does, how it affects us, why we should heed it, etc., etc., and talking about the importance of God's Word. So let's start. Verse 1. Does anybody see anything in verse 1 that references the Word of God? The law of the Lord. That's right, okay? So when you get there and you see in verse 1, right at the very jump, they're talking about the authority of the Word of God. Now, is there a cause, a result, a promise, a warning that you see there in verse 1? Blessed. Blessed are those whose way is blameless. Why? Because they walk in the way of the Lord. So what we're doing is we're teaching ourselves through the Word of God. The Holy Spirit is teaching us to say this is what submitting ourselves to the authority of the Word of God does. And this is the importance of God's Word. Do we want to be blessed? Yes. Do we want to live a blameless life as much as possible? Well, how do we do that? We don't walk in the way of social media. We don't walk in the way of pop psychology. We don't walk in the way of our feelings or our emotions. We walk in the way of the Lord. <laughs> Verse 2. Somebody just say it out loud. The barbaric y'all. His statutes. His statutes. Right. His statutes. Okay. No. No. Maybe, it, maybe it's worded different. You're, Verse 2. Testimonies. Testimonies. Okay. You have statutes. Okay. So still referring to the Word of God. Okay. What is the effect? What is the warning in verse 2? Blessed, right? But what is the condition? Blessed are those who what? Keep. They have to keep 
his testimonies, right? So it's not just saying we know the Word of God and we have the Word of God, but there's an expectation we're going to submit ourselves under the authority of the Word of God that we have to do something with it, right? There's, there's an obedience piece. There's an idea that we keep the Word of God. Okay? Verse 3. Anybody see a reference to the Word of God in verse 3? His ways. Okay? His ways. Now I realize that some of the translations might have a a different word here and there, but he talks about in verse 3 about His ways. Now what what is the benefit of walking in God's ways? We do no wrong. So you mean to tell me If I did everything God's Word told me to do, I wouldn't find myself constantly sinning against God. Unless you get prideful. But then you're still in in contradiction to the Word of God. So I've I've had arguments with some very well-intentioned, very sweet people because I've made a statement that I still believe is true that sin is a choice. And I've had pushback because they say, well, you can't help but sin. Where do we get that at? Now we understand in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned. R.C. Sproul would say that we sin. or we're not, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. And it's that inherent nature that we receive through Adam. This goes back to Romans 5. It's the inherent nature that we receive through the Adamic fall. That we receive this inherent nature, which is why that two-year-old back there, I don't have to teach him to be disobedient. His older brothers do it for him. (laughs) But it's the idea that once we gain knowledge and understanding, is sin a choice. I am convicted, and you can have a difference of opinions, and that is fine. My conviction is that sin is a choice. Why? Because I have the Word of God. And because the Word of God tells me that when I keep His ways, I will live a blameless life. Now, does that mean, well then Spence, that means you're sinless? Oh no, 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 don't misunderstand me. I'm not sinless. I make mistakes. But when I make mistakes, it's not that I'm absolved from the responsibility. It's because I have acted in contradiction to God's Word. And we're in a society today that nobody takes responsibility and it's no one else's fault. So verse 3, he says, if you keep His ways, they will keep you from wrong. Yes, sir. So you do have references. Noah, Job, Abram, Abraham. They were, they were called righteous or blameless. I'm not going to say they were called sinless, but yes, they are noted because of their faith and because of their obedience to God, they had a understanding. Like it says, Enoch um, was not. He walked with the Lord and he was not, for God took him. Kind of the idea of Elisha, or Elijah, as far as being taken up. Don't have any reason to understand that. Don't have any reason to believe that Enoch was sinless or that Elijah was sinless. But I do think there is a condition that God sees when a, a posture of the heart or the attitude of the heart. So I don't think they're sinless. You say, well, it says blameless and that sometimes... But they were making the right choices. They were making the right choices. That's right. 
They were making the right choices. The same thing whenever, oh, I'm doing this on the fly, um, Acts chapter 10, when the people from Cornelius' house come to Peter to ask him to come to Cornelius' house to tell the people about Jesus. When they come and they're praising Cornelius and they're saying how good of a guy he is and how upright in his conduct he is. It's a reference saying, hey, there's a guy that keeps keeps God's word and would love for you have, to have you come share the gospel. So in verse 3, he talks about this idea of this is what God's word does and this is why we should submit ourselves to the authority of God's word. Verse 4. Oh, I see we're almost halfway. Okay, so verse 4. What do you see? Precepts? Precepts? Anybody got something else besides precepts? Okay, so he talks about you have commanded your precepts. Alright, so what is a precept? A requirement. A requirement. Alright. Another idea what a precept is. Anybody else have another thought? God's mind. His thoughts. Okay. Okay. Suggested behavior. Suggested behavior. Okay. I don't have a curfew tonight, so we can be here as long as we want. Do what? Okay, the attorney. All right, can we have Mr. Carter? Can we have the legal, the legal definition of a precept? No, no. Okay. What God has appointed. The what? What God has appointed. What God has appointed. Okay. So it's the idea that God says, "I have standards. I have right. I have wrong. I have true. I have false. I have good. I have bad." I have a means of measuring. So when he says, I have commanded my precepts, it's saying, hey, these are the expectations. These are the standards that you are to follow. That's what he says in verse 4. You have commanded your precepts. Now notice the psalm writer is saying, you speaking to God, God, you have commanded your precepts. And then what is that next phrase in verse 4? To be kept diligently. It's the idea that we are to be a people. That not only read God's Word, but we study God's Word. We meditate on God's Word. We memorize God's Word. We make ourselves a student of God's Word. We learn about God's Word. Why? Because God's Word reveals to us His standards for our lives. So when we all stand before God one day, and every single one of us will stand in judgment for God one day. Every single one of us. And when we stand before God, and what standards will God hold us to? It's not a hidden, it's not a hidden mystery. It's not like we're going to be standing before God and God's going to say, well, now let me show you what standard I have been holding you to your entire life. No, God has given us, this is how I'm going to judge you. He's told us the rules. It's up to us to follow the rules. It's up to us to follow the standards. You get in academic writing, I don't know if Mr. Carter had this, but you get into academic writing and they've got style manuals. It's not all the same. So you have different 
writing styles, when it comes to newspapers, when it comes to academic books, and then when it comes to the academic setting, each academic institution has their own style manual, where the comma goes, how to place the period, the font of the footnote, the font or the size of the footnote, the font of the footnote, how it's to be indented or left justified, has all of these rules, and every different institution that I've been a part of all has their own peculiar style manual, and it's about 40 to 50 pages to say, here are the standards when you are going to write as part of your enrollment in this university. And when you, pre- when you present and submit work, you are held by that standard. And when you get deducted, as I do often, because I am not a very good student of the style manual, and I say, hey, what's wrong with that? Well, according to page 45 of the style manual, footnote 3, article A, subsection C, it says you're not supposed to do that. What is the expectation for me to be a diligent student of the style manual so I can write in the correct way because that is the standard by which I'm being held? Well, I don't think that's fair. (laughs) And that is where God would say, well then, create yourself and do what you want to with yourself. But as long as I created you, and you're under my authority, and you're under my sovereignty, these are the standards by which I will hold you. So verse 4, he says, precepts, keep diligently. Verse 5. Where do we see the reference to the God's Word in verse 5? Louder? Are you in verse 5, Miss Emma? Okay, so my ways, does somebody have a different wording there? Your decrees. Your decrees, okay. Statutes, okay. That's the second line there in verse 5. In keeping your your ways, precepts, statutes, it's just another reference to the Word of God. Now, preceding that, what is the promise? What is the condition? You might have steadfast. So it says, Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. It's the idea that if we don't want to be blown back and around, if we don't want to be wishy-washy, if we don't want to find ourselves floundering between conviction and conviction, it's a matter of are we willing to stay the ground. There's going to be a lot of opportunities for us to be challenged in our steadfastness in the days in which we live. I don't know about your experience with children, but my experiences have been you tell a child no, he's like ah, five seconds, you'll change your mind. Five seconds later, we ask the same question. Ten seconds later, we ask the same question. Fifteen seconds later, we just barrage them and just wear them down. And that steadfastness comes in standing to our convictions because it's not my opinion, it's not my attitude. This same sex. Marriage, the same-sex union issue, is not going to go away in your lifetime. And it's going to become more prevalent, and it's going to become more accepted, and it's going to become more demanded that you and I not only acknowledge, but support. And the only thing that is going to hold us to the Word of God is being steadfast. That's what he says in verse 5. Be steadfast. Verse 6. Verse 6. What do you see? Commandments. Right? So you see where he talks again about having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. Why? So we won't be put to shame. 
Many times we go around feeling guilty or feeling embarrassed. Or you have people living lives of shame because they know that they feel like they are less than or they've fallen short of the measure. And he says, how do you want to live a life unashamed? Not arrogant, confident. Not prideful, humble, and meek, but confident and that you're doing what you are supposed to do. How do you do that? Keeping your eyes fixed on God's commandments. Verse 7. What do you see there about the reference to the Word of God? Righteous rules. You all have that? Or some variation of that? He talks about the righteous rules in verse 7. But what do we do with these righteous rules? Praising. We praise Him. So you mean that we're supposed to praise God for His Word? Yes. You mean I'm supposed to be happy about God telling me how I should live? Yes. You mean that I should praise God even when I disagree? Yes. Praise God when I don't like it? Yes. I've told you there are many places if if God would so fit to give me a scripture eraser, there's places in the Bible that I love to erase. Pray without ceasing. Rejoice always like what Adam was preaching about several weeks ago. I mean, this idea that I would, I would love to erase those out of Scripture, but they're there. And what should be our attitude towards them? Not having a little pouty fit, got our bottom loop there, saying, oh, woe is me, poor pitiful me. The writer here of the psalm says we should praise Him. Praise Him because we have His Word. Praise Him because He's revealed Himself to us. Last one, verse 8. What's the reference to God's Word? Statutes. So he says, I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. Now notice the order. I will obey you, God. And then this is what you have committed to do for me. To not forsake me. Now that idea is pregnant with all kinds of meaning and application of what that means to not be forsaken. The idea the psalm writer says, you know what? God has promised that when we pursue Him, when we repent of our sins, confess our sins, Romans 10 says, if you believe in your heart, you will be saved. Not forsaken. Cast into hell for an eternity. But we will have a heavenly hope because of what God has committed to us. Now that's just these first eight verses that talks about the authority of God's Word, the beauty of God's Word. I haven't gone through all 176 this afternoon, but as I was looking down through there, the, all the ones that I looked at, every single verse has some reference to the Word of God, has some reference to how we relate to the Word of God, has some reference to how God's Word relates to us and what God's Word does for us and what we do with God's Word. All throughout Psalm 119, 176 verses, it is all centered around God's Word. And it matters. The authority of God's Word, the beauty of God's Word, it matters. And that is why it is distinctive in this Baptist church. Because of what the Bible says about itself. And let me just give you in the negative tense, what would it be like if we didn't have the Word of God? Without the Word of God, we do not have a source of truth. We have no truth. Well, we have truth in our secular society. We have opinions. Trust the science. The science changes. 
The science wavers. The science goes back and forth. Without the Word, we do not have a source of truth. Without the Word, we do not have a standard. A standard of how to live. A standard of how to conduct our lives. A standard of how men are to treat women. How husbands are to relate to their wives. We do not have a standard. Without the Word, we do not have hope in salvation. How do we know what it means and how a person is saved? By the Word of God. We have no hope in salvation apart from the Word. Without the Word, we are adrift. Adrift in a sea of opinions. Well, I think this. Well, I think that. Well, I feel this. Well, I feel that. Well, my grandma's, mama's, third cousin's twice removed on her sister's side, they did this. Well, tradition says this. Experience says this. And there's a lot of opinions out there. And I'm not saying they're all bad or all good. I'm just saying without the Word of God, we are adrift in a sea of opinions. So you have the Archbishop of Canterbury saying, since we've untied ourselves from the authority of God's Word, now we're adrift and now we will then create a blessing to bless same-sex unions even though we won't perform them. Why won't you perform them? Because we don't think they're biblical. Then why are you blessing them? Because we have to find some way to straddle the fence. And we've got to find some way to try to appease both groups of people. Because we're adrift. Without the Word of God, we do not have an identity. We don't have Jesus. We don't have Jesus, true. But without the Word of God, you don't know that you're a man. It's pretty strong. Without the Word of God, you don't know you were created by God. Without the Word of God, we do not know what is man, what is woman, what is animal. We don't know what is up. We don't know what is down. We don't know the difference between the sky and the difference between the earth. We don't know the difference between water and dry land. We don't know the difference between the moon and the stars and the sun. We have no identity apart from the Word of God. Well, Spence, see, science, science, science. Baloney, baloney, baloney. So you come back and you understand that without the Word of God, we do not have an identity. And then here's the last one. And I'll quit tuning on your ear. Without the Word of God, we do not know God. Like you said, Harold, we we don't have Jesus apart from the Word of God. But without the Word of God, we do not know God. Anybody know what Philippians 3.10 says? For my determined purpose is that I may know Him. Paul is writing and he is saying, the whole purpose of my life is to know God. Without the Word of God, we would have no knowledge of who God is and therefore we'd have no knowledge of what God has created us to be and we'd have no knowledge of what God expects of us to be and we'd have no knowledge of what God's standards are for our lives and apart from the Word of God, we would have no knowledge of God, no hope in salvation, no gospel of Jesus Christ, no identity in who we are, no knowledge of the standards of God's Word, no source of truth, nothing without the Word of God. Sometimes it feels like I just keep on beating this drum. 
on what, how we come to the Word of God. Sometimes I think you sweet people are going to be like, will he not talk about something? Will he just talk about something else? I don't know of anything that's more important in your daily life than your personal fellowship with God. Amen. And I don't know how anybody maintains a healthy, growing, personal fellowship with God apart from God's Word. And if we find ourselves being a people that say, this word, of the, this word of God, we can take it or leave it. This Bible is not that important. Give me my social media. Give me my popular magazines. Give me my internet browsing. Give me my nightly TV shows. Give me my talk radio times. Give me my hobby. Give me something else and we ignore the Word of God. How do we expect to be a people that can be a light to others about the Word of God? The Bible is important. And the Bible separates us from other religious other religions denominations because we are the people of the book. At some point, I don't know, I don't have a date yet, but at some point, we're going to do a movie night. Just so you don't think I'm baiting and switching you, it's not a movie. It's a sermon. It comes from the 1979 Southern Baptist Convention. 1979, the Southern Baptist Convention, there was a preacher by the name of Jerry Vines. Anybody know that name? Jerry Vines, long-time pastor at First Baptist Church in Jacksonville, Florida. And he was given the opportunity to be the keynote preacher. And he delivered a sermon called The Baptist and His Bible. That I find even... 30, 40 years later to be very convicting and very instructive to how we should hold the Word of God today. So at some point, we're going to come in and I'll have it queued up and Dr. Vines will preach to us from the past and he will preach to us about the reason for the Baptist and his Bible. A phenomenal, a phenomenal treatise on the Word of God. But that is what is a distinctive amongst us is our view and our submission to the authority of the Word of God. Questions? Pushbacks?